Hello and welcome back to the Institute of International Finance's podcast series, All About the Green, where we speak with topic experts on the exciting and ever-changing world of sustainable finance. I'm your host, Tim Adams, President and CEO of the IIF. This podcast episode comes from the webinar series that we launched earlier this year entitled Common Sense Conversations on Climate Change, developed to explore and highlight a wide array of topics related to climate change, with a special focus on the effects on the financial services industry and the broader economy. These dialogues are critical given the unique capability of financial institutions and markets to effectively identify risks and fund solutions. Though the topics vary, each episode takes a deep dive into ways to encourage pragmatic, common-sense solutions to facilitate the transition to a low-carbon and ultimately a net-zero-carbon economy. We're going to talk to two really smart people today about the role of technology, green technology, in addressing climate change and sustainability. With us, we have Dr. Vanessa Chan, who is the Chief Commercialization Officer for the Department of Energy and the Director of the Office of Technology Transitions. In this role, she is responsible for all commercialization activities across the entire Department of Energy, including the 17 national laboratories, which are the gems of the federal government and the department's other research and production facilities. She is on leave from the University of Pennsylvania, where she is a professor of innovation and entrepreneurship and has a background in uh, material science and engineering. We also have John Goldstein from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is a board member and a longstanding member of the IIF. He serves as the chair of the Sustainable Finance Group and joined Goldman Sachs in 2015 through the acquisition of Imprint Capital, really an innovative firm that John himself founded. One of the really first leading voices and, and thought leaders in terms of impact investing and sustainability back when very few people were thinking about it, but the people who were thinking about it then are really laid the groundwork for us now as it, we see it a rapid acceleration, not only here, but globally. So Vanessa, John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Why don't we get started? Vanessa, you have a long title, the Chief Commercialization Officer and Director of Office of Technology. What do you do? What does that office do? And what specifically does the Department of Energy do in terms of supporting technological solutions, but green technology specifically? Sure. So my mandate, as outlined by Congress, is to actually ensure that we have a commercial impact for all the taxpayer dollars being funneled into research. I have a PhD from MIT and spent over a decade at McKinsey and Company helping really big companies commercialize their technologies. And so I'm like a kid in the candy store right now in terms of the kinds of really amazing technologies that we're developing in the Department of Energy. And really my role is to help think about how do we take the things that are going in the lab, which is basic research and a lot of applied research, and actually make it out the door so that actually having commercial impact in the world. And so for me, this is uh, really like a dream come true, because when you take a look at the scientists in our national labs, they're incredible in terms of the kinds of things that they're tackling. And so really, uh, the goal for what I'm trying to do is help the entire Department of Energy make sure these things see the light of day and are making a difference in our climate. When we think about commercialization, it's one of those squishy words. And when I think about it, it's about how do you get across research, development, uh, demonstration to deployment and across that continuum. And so what my office is really doing is trying to understand where do we smoothly get across that continuum. One of the things that I think is really challenging when you get a PhD is you're actually not trained at all to go towards commercialization. So what I mean by that, what I mean is uh, you start by joining a research group where everyone is focused on the exact same technology. For my research group was block polymers and everyone who's ever graduated from my research group has done work in that arena. And then you're told while you're actually getting your PhD, don't talk to anyone about your work because you might get spooked. 
And so, you know, we uh, got a first paper author publication in science when I was done with my PhD. So my advice was definitely do not talk to people about your work because it's so groundbreaking. And that's the antithesis of commercialization. And then ultimately, when you end up finishing your PhD, you're defending your PhD, which is a horrible mindset to have, which you're defending what you're doing. And so Energy I4 is a way to really change the mindset of uh, PhDs um, and really get them to be thinking more outwardly. Because uh, by design, when you get your PhD, you're very inwardly focused and you're working in the lab and your goal really is towards research publications. When we have the Energy I4, we're doing is saying, look, you know, you're really deep technically and that's amazing. That's what academia is teaching you how to do. Now go and take that knowledge and go talk to the external world. Go talk to 100 people about your research and ask yourself, where can that research actually have an impact? Learn to go and communicate your technologies to different kinds of people, everything from investors to strategic companies who may be interested, not just to your fellow researchers. Now, so really the energy I for is giving and complementing skills that are required to PhD researchers so that they actually can have an impact. The Technology Commercialization Fund is another uh, program to help across that continuum. So energy I for is helping with the kind of research and development and what the lab mindset is. What TCF is doing is now saying, look, you know, we've got this great technology. We need to partner with public companies and private companies to actually bring these things to market. So what we do is we have a fund that is a 50-50 cost share with the partner. And then you're taking a lab technology, prototyping and trying to find pathways to market. And so really the point of these two programs is to find gaps within the RDD and continuum and having programming to support those. Wonderful. We're going to come back to both of those topics. Let's turn to John, who's in the business of helping turn ideas into real businesses as well. John, tell us a little bit about the Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman Sachs. What does it do and what do you do and and how does that connect maybe with what Vanessa just described? Yeah, my own journey to what I do now has been a fascinating sign of how all of this has changed and matured. I co-founded a company called Immigrant Capital back in 2007. Worked with foundations endowments on this topic. Small firm and $550 million. But this topic became of more interest to more people. And we started getting hired by financial institutions as we got to 2012, 2013, 2014. And one of those institutions made the surprising suggestion that becoming a client, what if they were to buy us? So in 2015, joined Goldman Sachs and the Asset Management Division through acquisition. And the growth continued, where from there, the question is, how to weave this throughout that, how to pick stocks and bonds, to how to create these products, to how to talk to clients. Once again, sign of the times, that business grew from about a $3 billion business in 2015 to north of $140 billion business today. But then in 2018, you know, started joining a conversation with a lot of our senior leaders who saw, we had a long history in this work. You know, I think we probably started talking about climate in 2005. We've had an investment group, we've invested in climate and inclusive growth for some time, but just something was fundamentally changed. It wasn't just a question for us. It was a question for all of the firm. And it wasn't just for our investing clients. It's for our corporate clients, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, you name it, our biggest clients around the world. What we saw was not actually just something in terms of market demand. It wasn't just investors wanted ESG assets. We saw fundamental changes in the economy, two secular themes, climate transition, inclusive growth. When we saw that, the reaction is not to create a set of products or not to create a set of services, but to figure out how do we as a firm all of our business fundamentally develop our expertise, we have to know things, capabilities, so that knowledge has to translate the things you can actually do, products and services. And how do we deliver that to clients? And that's what I do. So the Samuel Finance Group's job is to ensure that we as a firm across all of our client bases can do that. When we see something that important in the economy, we think we need to be excellent at it. And our job is to help achieve that, not on our own. So we have a hub and spoke model. So there are 12 of us that sit in the executive office across the firm. 
I have the steering group that, that I chair along with Liam Powell. But what we have are dedicated working groups of senior leaders within each of our four divisions, these sustainable solutions councils. And it's not the senior sustainability leaders of these divisions. It's the leaders of these divisions. And we sit down every week or two. There's a set of work streams. Because the big question for us is once you have that strategic clarity of importance, once you set a target, and we have this ambition of $750 billion of sustainable finance over the next 10 years, how are you going to achieve that? How are you going to deliver? How are you going to execute? And that's not 12 of us initially flying around the world, now zooming around the world. It's 39,000 people uh, working on this topic. And so the fundamental question is, how do you concentrate knowledge in that market visibility, but then distribute execution? This can be part of what we do day in and day out. So really, that's our job, is to help drive that expertise. In a lot of cases, it's just de-siloing knowledge that sits somewhere within the firm. And a lot of smart people doing a lot of amazing work. We got a lot of smart clients doing amazing work. The question is, how does the firm get the benefit of that knowledge and deliver that back out to the client? Number two, how do we have that internal R&D lab? You know, we talked about getting things out of the lab. In some cases, we're the lab. New products, new services, new capabilities that then get rolled out by the division. And then fundamentally, how do we sit with clients who increasingly, this is of interest not just to one person within our client, but to many. And what they want doesn't just sit in one part of our firm. So to, how do we deliver that? So that's, that's really our job, to try to make sure that we as a firm can be excellent on these topics both what's under the hood in terms of each of our divisions, but then how we deliver to clients. John, you bring up a good point. The issue of how do you deal with silos, right? And it occurs in every institution. And how do you pull the pieces together? Vanessa, you're doing the same thing. You've got 17 different national labs. I said they're the real gems of the federal government. But you're part of a broader constellation here in Washington, various agencies, departments. And the White House has its own constellation of offices. How are you all connected to presidential ambition, which with respect to climate is, is, is incredibly aspirational. How do you connect all those various silos together, look across them and then connect back with uh, the mothership of the White House? Yeah, so, you know, it's something we're being very deliberate around behind the scenes. There's a lot of kind of cross-functional, even across DOE and different agencies to think about things. I co-chair the Lab to Market Committee with NIST, and any agency that has a federally funded lab is part of that group. That includes NASA, DOD, HHS. And so we're really, you know, creating formal threads through that as well. In the end, it's all about, you know, making sure that we have connections. And that's what's great about having politicals working with feds is that a lot of the career folks, right, have been around for a long time and have those connections. And they're helping to facilitate that. And so really this idea of collaboration is so critical, especially when we have very ambitious agendas like this. And so I've had many conversations across the administration with many different groups. So we can all put our head together and have a tackle this. The mood in this town is incredibly different than what it was 12 months ago. The Biden presidency, the focus on climate, the focus on R&D, the focus on infrastructure, it is a sea change. How is that filtering down to where you are? And is there a real palpable sense of excitement and acceleration? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it has been incredible. It's something where my colleagues and all of us are pinching ourselves every day. And the kinds of people that the Biden administration has brought in are really people who want to have an impact and in their very unique way uh, have already made an impact. And so really, you do feel a change. And when I speak to my colleagues who are more the career folks, they feel the change as well. I'm new to the federal government in terms of knowing how it was 12 months ago. But all I know is uh, I've worked in many, many different ecosystems. And this ecosystem right now is uh, electric. And I'm not saying that because I'm from the Department of Energy, but you can just feel that people are excited and have this pent up energy to really make a difference in the world. John, whenever I get really frustrated about Washington, I get on a plane, I go to Palo Alto or San Francisco, the Silicon Valley area, and I get really excited. What I see there in cafes and various universities, 
is really exciting. It's a, it's like all the world's best minds come there. It's a can-do environment. There's no sense of you know the stigma failure solutions are really being created there. If I could bottle up what's going on there and bring it back here, I would. How does the political change here? How does that look from three thousand miles away? It's a really interesting question because I think sometimes people thought with too simplistic and a binary lens on U.S. federal policy, and and I would occasionally talk to people who had this sense of needing to wait you know, need to wait, what was going to happen? Are we going to see a change? And I think the thing I point out to them is, you know, look at the growth in ESG investing in 2000. In a pandemic with a federal government that generally was not particularly supportive of this, you know, $237 billion of inflows, massive new waves of commitments from companies, from investors, from asset owners. Those pledges in terms of companies committing up and down their supply chains. I think what we saw is the private sector actually seeing these themes and positioning themselves for like a phrase we kept on hearing is where the world was going. And that was in spite of federal policy that was not particularly conducive. And so now we do have a very different approach. And I think seeing it not just from DOE, but from SEC, from Treasury, you know, setting the tone, re-entering the Paris Agreement right at the beginning, you know, all the way through conversations about what's going to go in an infrastructure bill. And so this kind of all of government approach. I think what's important though is this is not going from a standing start. This is not generating new activity. This is probably the wrong metaphor for this. I, when I hear sparking sitting here in the Bay Area, I get very sensitive as we think about fire season later this year. Um, but, but I think it is fuel on the fire. But the fire was already well lit, burning brightly through, through last year. And I think it's an important thing I, I, I try to walk through with people who say, well, we see all the support now, but is, is it going to go back? Is it going to change? And the reality is it's really markets driving this. This is market-driven in terms of companies, investors, and others. And federal policy can be really conducive, can partner well with it, can accelerate that. But at the end of the day, this has strong roots and core secular themes in the economy from companies and from investors. And so this is not a pendulum. This is a road. And I think it's important to have that lens because federal policy can be such a focus. I think it's sometimes, you know, mistake it for the sort of tennis match of ideology when fundamentally this is much more market-driven than it is politically driven. Dennis, that's a great segue into a question about how do you think about resource allocation under your purview, dividing that up between advancing technology and science for the purpose of advancing ideas versus how do you discover or fund that that might be commercially viable? And how far do you take it before you start looking for partnerships? How do you divide the science from the commercialization? Well, I think it's hard to divide science from commercialization because I think they absolutely should be inextricably linked. And when they're not is when you have a problem, because if you're doing science, the absence of thinking about the real world, that's when you're just doing you know, science without really thinking about the way it can have an impact. And so the key thing for me is really think about this continuum, as I mentioned, of you know, research to development, demonstration to deployment. So I think sometimes people say, oh, we do research in the lab and then we're going to magically deploy it. There's a continuum with which you have to be uh, working across. And anytime that I have done commercialization across these different ecosystems, it's really important to have market input as early as possible. So there are times when we actually are doing market analysis, when we have an idea of a problem we want to solve before we even think about the technology. And that's a good thing because then your question becomes, okay, what does this look and feel like? What's the technology or the science we can connect with it that can, can then solve it? And as you start getting to the early stages of research, you're really starting to, you know, think about the hypotheses and the value proposition. And you really have to be open-minded to be continuously talking to the market so that you are resolving and reiterating the kinds of information you're getting and how that might inform the science that you're doing. So for me, the really key thing is ensuring that 
that kind of conversation is happening earlier and sooner rather than later. And I think too often, and we talked about energy i a lot of researchers will do that later, right? Like, well, I want to work in the school somehow, talk to people later. And I'm like, no, 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 talk to people now because it'll change how you do your research once you do that. And I've seen that across many ecosystems. And it's one thing that I feel very passionately about. So are you bringing in people like John or uh, venture capitalists or others early stage? And, and is there a culture clash from those who are in the lab thinking, you know what, I, I want to focus on my science. I, I hear you, I'm all for profits, but there's some really exciting science here. So I, how do you deal with the culture? And you said pretty early in the process. How early is early? So here's the thing, right? When you think about people, there's a distribution, right? And so, uh, you know, my center of gravity is more towards going to the very, very early and talking to people sooner. But there's things where we shouldn't be doing that because there's fundamental science that may never have a commercial outcome, right? And that is okay because that is part of the portfolio of what DOE is investing in. And so I think the key thing is looking at things as a portfolio and it's not one size fits all. There are going to be some things which you should go earlier stage because of the fact that you are looking for commercial impact and things. And there's others where, you know what, we may never commercialize it, but it may lead to commercialization later. One perfect example of this is when we created the world's uh, most impactful linear accelerator coming out of Fermi National Labs. And they made some very powerful magnets in order to allow the ability to accelerate particles. Those magnets became the basis of MRIs. So all the MRIs have DOE to thank. So the point I'm trying to make is there's fundamental science that's happening, but what you need to do is be really creative and say, what did we create, right? In doing this fundamental science, no one was thinking about inventing an MRI when they're creating this linear accelerator. But when you have creative people looking at the things that you've invented around the basic science or even the basic science itself, you may find application you never thought of. Proton therapy is another example of this. And so I think the key thing is there's no one size fits all. It's about having a portfolio approach to this and making sure that where it makes sense, bringing the market early to shape the things that we're looking to get to applied impact. John, you've got a $750 billion fund to finance, invest companies, promote clean technology. How do you decide what is going to be the breakthrough technologies? How early in the stage are you investing? And, you know, are there particular parts of the, the spectrum of investments that really get you excited? So this is one of the things I love about my job that uh, keeps, keeps me very busy, which is our job is to really look across all of our businesses and to really work relatively widely across that stage. Because, you know, in some cases, it's new innovative technologies that will become their own companies. In other cases, it's transitioning established businesses. And then in some cases, it's all points in between. And so we allocate to specialized venture funds that are at the earlier stage in those innovations. We have our own capital investing, growth equity, and other types of infrastructure, debt financing, other types of capital needs. And then as things grow, our investment bank can take companies public, issue bonds and other things. So I think for us, step one is have that view across the life cycle of investment that's needed. And I think this is where we have a framework called Carbonomics, Michele de la Vigna has done a wonderful piece of work. I think a lot of it's available publicly that shows, you know, fundamentally, as we try to reach important decarbonization goals, there are cost curves of both sequestration and abatement. And we're at different points of the economics of those activities. And part of this role of technology and of scale is to change those cost curves, more volume, lower cost, more volume, lower cost. And to do that both on the sequestration side and the abatement side. So for us, actually, it's important to play across stages. We don't get as early as Vanessa in the labs, but I think what we want to do is have that conveyor belt of capital and capacity leaning into these themes as things grow. Number one, number two, I think it's important that some of what we can bring is financial technology and innovation. And so I think uh, the pay for success bond we did for the Italian utility Enel. I think people are familiar with green bonds, 
But I think their question is, you know, look, there's transition in the real economy that needs to happen. And how do we have financing that's tied to achieving those goals? And so in that case, they tied their cost of capital to actually achieving their targets in terms of decarbonization and renewable power. Right? They effectively paid a penalty interest rate if they didn't get 55% of their power being renewable by the end of 2022. You know, the work we announced recently with Apple and Conservation International on forestry, how do we find ways to deploy more capital in a way that sequesters carbon in a community-engaged way with forestry around the world? So I think innovation looks lots of different ways. Sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's financing models, sometimes it's scaling and deployment models. And so for us, that's the question of how do we use our whole toolkit, not just this piece, not just that piece. How do we use our whole toolkit to lean into those questions? Your carbonomics work is really quite good. Excellent research. And on the uh, nature-based sequestration, our work on our task force on voluntary carbon markets, which will launch in July 8th, nature-based sequestration, avoidance, and remediation, incredibly important, especially reforestation, afforestation. Happy to come back to that as well. Vanessa, in terms of climate and green technology, how much direction do you give those who are part of your organization in saying, this is really important. Yes, we have proton accelerators and yes, linear accelerators, but we need, to, we need to focus on all things green. How much of it is a driven from the bottom? How much of it is people show up in your office and say, look, I've got this great idea. We think it will have big impact on battery technology. What's the flow of information and direction? Like all good uh, ecosystems, it should go from the top and the bottom because, you know, the at the bottom, right, it's really that's where the research is being done. And so there should be, you know, awareness of what's going there at the top. There's kind of a vision of where you want to go and all kinds of stuff going on in the middle and also from the side. Because, you know, part of it is if you're really uh, able to do this well, right, there actually are partners that are coming and looking at the labs to see what they may be able to do with it. So give me an example. Uh, right now, my uh, group has something called the Lab Partnering Service, which is an online portal that you can all go to, uh, labpartnering.org. And there you actually can type in a keyword, uh, could be anything, a carbon sequestration, and then it will pop out all the patents that we filed in this area, all the researchers and all the facilities that you can access in any kind of technology that you're interested in. And the reason why we do that is we want even uh, across the ecosystem, like, hey, we're interested in this. What is DOE doing? Can we work together? And so really, it's not just the top and the bottom. It's us trying to activate entire ecosystem around the work that we're doing and asking them, we've got this stuff. What can we do to partner with you to bring things to market? And so really, the exciting thing about it is, is we're trying to do all the work that we have and amplify it um, more broadly. You know, one of the important aspects of moving the frontier in terms of technological innovation is ensuring the dissemination of information, per your point. How do you ensure that it's not just multinational corporations showing up? How do you disseminate what you're doing to small businesses and other places that maybe have the next aha moment and all they're missing is a critical ingredient from one of your labs? So a couple of things. Uh, one is we deliberately engage with them. One of the um, programs that uh, I have is called EPIC, which is Energy Program for Innovation Clusters, a great acronym. I can't take any credit from it. It was uh, others who put that together. But my program ministers it. And what we do is we fund incubators accelerators that are helping startups to actually figure themselves out. As we all know, startups are trying to learn value proposition, these kinds of things. And so we just had a million dollars that we uh, gave out as a prize. That was worth $50,000 to 20 uh, incubators and accelerators across the nation. And we're using that to really help them catalyze the work that they're doing because we think startups are absolutely critical in small businesses to really getting to this um, economy 
uh, impact that we want, as well as the ability to hit the climate agenda. And so the, through these networks of uh, incubators and accelerators, we then do a lot of showcasing. So we will have webinars where we talk about the work that we're doing. We also do a lot of caucusing. There's something called the Innovation X Series where we're on the other side of the pandemic. We're looking forward to doing a couple more of these in person, but they are on industry verticals where we will host them in one of our national labs. Uh, we've done them in Quantum and others. Basically bring hundreds of people together, including small businesses, to see everything that we're doing in that industry vertical and try to catalyze some work together. So we're being very deliberate that it has to be the entire ecosystem. It cannot just be multinational corporations. And I think startups especially are very helpful to us because many of them may license our technology and actually try to bring something to market. And so that's one of the reasons why we created this portal was anybody can access it, especially the startups, to see what they can do with the lab research. So, John, I'll ask you the same question. How do you sift through the millions of small business opportunities, not just in Silicon Valley, but across the United States? How do you find them? And then is there a lot of competition? Are you showing up knocking doors and you've got you know people from a lot of venture capital funds? Is there a lot of capital out there chasing ideas? Is it a crowded space as you're looking for new ideas? I'd like to say I think we have a lot more company than we used to. And that's a really good thing. Right. I, I, gosh, I remember looking at this years, years back, and uh, you get a lot of funny looks on people's faces when we talk about investing in technology. And they say, don't you remember? We tried that in 2005. It didn't work. Right. And it's gone from there to being really hot. These are no longer under traveled areas. And so this is how markets work. Right. Something is undiscovered that it has some proof points and success and then people get excited about it. And then to add value and insight, you have to be a little smarter and work a little harder. Right. And so I think this gets actually to the point about small business and large business. One of the things we found this whole cycle, right? How do we get from kind of small and high cost to scaled and lower cost? How do we have those cycles, which ordinarily take time, that time be a lot faster, right? How do we have those cycles go faster? And so that's where actually these linkages between small businesses and large businesses can be really valuable. So, you know, we worked with a Swedish battery maker called Northvolt. And Small company, startup company, but to become a battery business, you need a lot of capital, right? Because you've got to build a big factory to make them at scale, to sell them at scale so the price points work. So you have a classic chicken and egg problem. And so this is a case where being a small business together with large businesses actually is a powerful technology. In this case, we wrangled $13 billion in advance purchase orders from Volkswagen and BMW. So small business, large company together, suddenly that cycle, that chicken and egg problem gets unlocked. I think at this point, they're close to $30 billion of orders and off to the races. Often what's actually useful is leveraging our network of corporate relationships. You have that community. How do you have those pieces of the ecosystem come together? We talked about de-siloing earlier. We need to de-silo our own organizations, but we also need to de-silo a lot of these parts of the market. And so one of the things we consciously figure out is how do we use our corporate network, our corporate relationships, who often are the buyers of these products or services, the users, the licensors, How do we get them together with small business? We have a long history of working with small business in a lot of ways, including with our 10,000 small business program. But how do we consciously realize what problem are we solving and how do we solve it? So often that point about how do we find opportunities? Part of it is you just be in the market. We've been in it for a while. We know what we're looking for. We've built the relationships, the community. We've made investments. You know, building networks and community takes time, but we've been doing it for quite a while. Two is show you're a good partner. Once upon a time in this market, just showing up was enough. It's not enough anymore. You got to show that you're a great partner in this. You bring something much above and beyond capital. And so we constantly have to continue to push the bar of what we can deliver. Once again, that's a good thing. Competition in these markets is a really good thing, which means you got to work a little harder, be a little smarter, be a little bit of a better partner, either to find something that's not as well understood or to show that you're the partner of choice 
uh, for things that are more widely appreciated. Other than, you know, your usual tech centers, Austin or Silicon Valley, are there other parts of the country, emerging technology areas that are sort of the Silicon Valley of the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes out of old industrial innovation. There's a lot of process uh, refinement needs to happen. So if I put pins in where we're finding great companies, they're all over the U.S. and also in the world. Europe has a lot of fascinating companies in this space. Asia has a lot of fascinating companies in this space. And so I think the fact that I'm out in the Bay Area is just an artifact of the fact that that's where we have to do and live. It's not where all the action in this space is. Silicon Valley is to some degree a little bit of a newcomer to some of these themes. I mean, there's innovation going on all over, some of which feels very new economy applying information, data science, technology to optimize things, uh, but some of which feels, you know, is actual stuff and innovation of stuff doesn't always happen here in Silicon Valley. It happens in lots and lots of other places. In fact, to your point about looking, it's helpful that we get to engage a large organization that has footprint all over and clients all over to look for this, because I think that's important. A lot of people have this mental model of, oh, you're in San Francisco, that must be where the action is. And there's certainly a lot going on here, but that's more an accident of history as opposed to a deliberate choice of, you know, where we find innovation, which is, it's easy. We talked about de-siloing. That applies to also where you look for these opportunities and how you find great companies. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities in the ag space. I've been following vertical farming. A lot of really interesting things occurring out in the middle part of the country often gets overlooked. Vanessa, let me come to you. The IEA issued two great reports, one about three weeks ago, about the importance of material input. Where are the materials going to come from with respect to 21st century renewable energy technology? And there's a lot of challenges to where we get cobalt and nickel and so on. But the one that last week, which is looking at uh, decarbonization, and there's a quote there that said, by 2050, half the reductions in carbon will come from technologies that are currently just at the demonstration or prototype phase. So I'm a technology optimist. Make me feel good. Technological solutions are out there. They're on their way. What do you need to turn those ideas into real solutions where we begin to decarbonize? One of the things that I get very excited about my office is that our mandate is to drive to commercial impact and commercialization. And so really, you know, I can't iterate the need to think about the continuum of RDD&D, so research and development, demonstration, and deployment, and ensuring there's a real continuity across it. Because where I see challenges is when we actually have issues on the handoff at the different stages of that. And so part of that means getting away from understanding tech maturation as purely an analysis of technology readiness levels and integrating larger factors like market appetite, regulatory environment, financial viability, and manufacturing you know, considerations into the mix. And a lot of what folks have been talking about is really things like cost curves and so forth. All of us know about this concept of value of death or multiple values death. And this is where promising research dies in the vine. It's because a startup isn't able to get the capital that they need. It's not just because of that. Although it's really hard in the energy technology, especially the horizons can be long and the financial needs are great. But if you're really able to understand that there's actually multiple values of death um, that people are facing and that uh, it includes product development, market validation, and establishing a track record to get you to deployment, then you can start actually IDing where the problems are across this continuum and asking yourselves, how do we fill these gaps? And that's really what I'm trying to do inside the DOE is to develop an inventory of the programs and where all the gaps and challenges exist and how do we make sure that we've got that continuum and then bringing together all the private sector decision makers with the DOE innovators so that we can get to the connections that are going to lead to the partnerships. And so really the thing that I think that should make you feel good is that the private sector has raised their hand and actually made sustainability goals. They actually have no idea how to meet. 
which in some ways, many private sector uh, folks would never do something like that. But, you know, to the point that John made, they're looking at where the world's going, they have to get themselves there. So by publicly committing to doing that, even though they don't know how to get there, is forcing a catalysis of conversations I haven't seen before. I mean, chief sustainability officer, that role did not exist, I would say, even five, 10 years ago for many of the big companies. Now I'm having meetings with many of them and they're like, look, I'm scared. I made these commitments, not sure I'm gonna get there, but we have to get there. And so that's really what makes me feel good is when people know and they've made a commitment, they will get themselves there. And so that's, I think, what should give us hope. We've just done a survey of chief sustainability officers, and it's not a uniform title across institutions, but you're right. It has become a central part of any institution, especially financial institution. Dina Powell, which John mentioned, is an old friend of mine. We are also seeing the issue of sustainability move into the risk function, into the business. Sustainability, it is in the C-suite. David Solomon made it a priority. I'm going to ask both of you, and I'll come back to you, Vanessa. Are there some favorite technologies you like? And I ask that we do a lot of, done some work with breakthrough technologies and Gates Ventures. They like green hydrogen, they like sustainable aviation fuel, they like modular or small nuclear reactors. What's in your green suite? What do you like? What's the wow factor in the pipeline that we should be looking for? You've mentioned ones which are all my favorites. I can't choose. Like, you know, as someone who's very agnostic to, you know, having favorites, I want all of them to succeed, right? Energy storage is another one, uh, electric vehicles. I mean, anything to do with green and clean, I'm all about. So I really can't choose a favorite other than to be like, we need an entire suite and portfolio of things, but you've mentioned many of the ones which I think are critical and we're spending time against them. Anything that can help us get to our climate agenda, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of. John, what's out there in the pipeline that Goldman Sachs likes and really wants to put its resources on? I think I'm going to be sadly duplicative of Vanessa and say it's a little bit all of the above, right? And I, I'll go back to the carbonomics framework. I think, you know, we look across industries and across sectors and we have, you know, global client base in terms of investors and corporations and they have different needs. They're different points of this process. And I, I, I will say, though, the one thing that people like to think of in the either or, right? You know, they don't like to think of the both and. And I think this is very much a both and world. And I think for us, it's essential. We have, you know, real investors and real companies that are at various stages of transition and want help. And what they need as the next part of their journey and the further leg are varied. So all those technologies you mentioned are all relevant. They're all things we're spending time on. So much of the question is, how do you understand the need that, uh, say, a corporate has? And how do you accelerate those cycles, right? Those cycles take too long without being thoughtful and deliberate. That's why that Northfold example for us is such an interesting sort of almost social technology. How do you organize demand? You know, we, we saw the power of power purchase agreements to accelerate wind and solar deployment of renewables. How do we apply that same idea of offtakes to accelerate scaling deployment of those cost curve reduction across all these technologies? Because I think that's relevant to all of those things you're talking about from SAF to hydrogen to kind of you name it. So we like all those, we plan those. This is not just a chief sustainability officer problem slash opportunity anymore. I mean, I, I've noticed this in the last 12 months, our meetings are with boards, it's with CEOs. The chief sustainability officer may be along, but it, it really is a C-suite issue. And often the head of sustainability, they'll introduce themselves and, you know, she'll say, most recently I was head of M&A or I was head of corporate strategy, right? You know, honestly, these are not people that are focused just on making sure they're recycling bins at the cafe. These are people at the core of the business. And, and I think that's what in turn allows us to engage to help accelerate those transitions because the, the risk in all of this to some degree is there's so much focus on pledges and commitments and data and reporting and all of these frameworks and tools and acronyms. And what can get lost in that is that this is fundamentally about the real economy, about the real economy. It's not about who happens to have what asset in portfolio. I, some of the people forget that just because a particular asset doesn't sit in someone's portfolio 
doesn't mean it miraculously ceases to exist. This is a broad real economy challenge, and it's rolling up the sleeves and engaging you know, across the economy, across these technologies, across people at different stages of this process. Climate change is a global problem. It requires a global solution. How do you work with your counterparts in Europe or other parts of the world? How do we share information? How do we protect the IP and ensure that the commercialization returns accrue here? But we also want to ensure that the dissemination of information, not only is domestically, but internationally. How do you work with your colleagues around the world? And what's the breakdown between keeping it for ourselves, but also sharing it for the benefit of all humanity? Look, we just joined the Paris Agreement. That was like one of the biggest things to signal. We want to work and collaborate with this. Uh, you know, climate is global, to your point. Anything you do in one country is going to affect the entire globe. So we have to do this together. I think the question on IP is always a really tricky one. That's not something we can answer in the last two minutes, but it's something that can be a sticking point. And so it's something that we are being thoughtful and deliberate around. I wish I could give you a 30 second answer. If I did, then I would be you know, making sure everyone's adopting it, but it's not that simple. And it's going to depend on a case by case basis. One thing that we are trying to do though, is the secretary and myself are not people who want bureaucracy to get in the way of progress. And so my group particularly is looking at innovative ways we can do contracts and other things like that to make it faster and easier to work with other nations, but also private sector as well, because I have seen many, many, many things die on the contracting table, and that's not what we want to have happen. John, I'll ask the same question. You have a little bit different goal access, global footprint everywhere. How do you work across various geographical jurisdictions? And you're looking, obviously, for great ideas everywhere outside the U.S. What excites you? At the end of the day, this gets back to, I think, your first question is, what do I do and how do I do it? Which is, the fundamental question is, we are a global organization. We have global clients with global needs, which some similarities, some different, and a lot of interconnection. Right? A lot of what we're seeing are corporates that are making commitments across their supply chain. So U.S. companies that operate globally making commitments across the whole of their business. We see investors making commitments across the whole of their portfolio. And so our job is, I, I began by saying, it's about having that expertise and knowledge, some of which is global, some of which is regional, some of which is more you know, differentiated by region, other which not. But we got to harness you know, what we learn from our clients and our people on a global basis. So those working groups I talked about within each division, they have people from all around the globe, right? The global steering group is in fact global, right? We need people that touch all of these different elements, both as we learn about the market, as we develop capabilities, because parts of the market have different needs. There are different gaps, there are different challenges. And so what we do for clients, you know, is not the same in each market because the needs are different. And then finally, that we can deliver the global firm, right? So I, I'm thinking about some leading U.S. corporates that have deep ambitions in this. So I talked about the Restore Fund with Apple and Conservation International. You know, that's a global set of investments for a truly global company based here. And I think, you know, a lot of it is trying to do what we do and what we try to do well across any issue, which is, you know, one of the phrases David Solomon uses a lot is, you know, one Goldman Sachs, this idea of one firm in terms of our knowledge and delivery. And this topic, as much, if not more, I'm slightly biased than any other, it's really all about that. You have to use all of our organization to sense and understand and the full toolkit to deliver on a global basis, even if at the end of the day, the people we're really working with may be companies you know, based here in the States. With that, thanks everyone for joining us today. Vanessa, John, thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Very exciting work. And we'll see you soon. Thanks again for listening to IF's All About the Green podcast. This has been a great conversation. We thank our guests for another engaging dialogue on the implications of climate change in the financial services industry and the broader economy. For more episodes of All About the Green, please visit us at IIF.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.